A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, listener. Welcome to episode 117 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zune, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the Darth Warlock to my Darth Krayat, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. And someday I get to run this shiznit. <laughs> Who runs this? Darth Warlock. <laughs> and you'll know why in a little bit. Now here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we continue wrapping up our Star Wars Vector crossover event. We started with 28 and 29, we're going to wrap up with 30 31 of Star Wars Legacy. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. That's right. We took care of our non-spoiler thoughts back in the previous episode, if you want to hear those. Uh, it is, again, important to note here what we are judging this all by, aside from just, is it a good story? Uh, we, of course, have uh, the three things that the team behind Vector set as their own goals. To make certain that the events in the crossover mean something to the characters in each of the series, uh, thereby changing the course of every series that it touches. Uh, it should be reader-friendly accessible to both new and long-time readers, and uh, that readers shouldn't feel like they're forced to buy issues of other series that they wouldn't normally read in order to follow it. Therefore, each chapter of Vector must feel as though it could be a standalone story within just the series it is a part of. Now, what we found so far is that while it hits the first and the third of these, it's not quite necessarily hitting the second. Um, the first being that it is a game-changer, yes, it will be. The last being the fact that this is going to be something that could be read as part of Legacy without having to read the other Vector parts, yes. But we found that the background, the ability to make this entirely new reader-friendly, has been a little bit uh, iffy. Not so much because of Vector itself, but because of the background necessary to understand the Legacy era. Those we found at the end of our last episode, the second part of this has a lot of conversations in it. And throughout conversations in both the first and second issues of the legacy part here of Vector, um, we got some background that is making it easier to understand for new readers, though not entirely understandable necessarily, at least not in the big picture sort of way, um, but that is also adding some depth for us throughout uh, the process of reading all of legacy here. Now we get into the two issues that are basically the action-packed ones. Not a lot of conversation, not a lot of slow bits, 
pretty much just a lot of butt kicking. Um, so we start with issue number 30, Vector Part 11 out of 12, and we pick up on Coruscant, where Darth Reeve, who we saw back in our last episode of Beyond the Films here, the Deveronian Sith that wound up being bitten or scratched by a rat ghoul, has made it all the way from Had Abaddon to Coruscant without changing into a rat ghoul. When he arrives, though, sure enough, wouldn't you know it, he changes right in front of Darth Crate. Uh, and Darth Strife winds up having to kill him. And Malady recognizes this is ancient Sith alchemy uh, tied into the plague that was on Terrace back in the day. And around the same time, we get an incoming communication. Uh, a lot of, of curiously timed, convenient events all happening at once. It's a communication that comes in from Celeste Morn, or more to the point, that comes in from Karnas Mir, right? The ancient uh, Sith Lord from the original Sith from the Hundred Year Darkness, uh, trapped inside, his spirit trapped inside that talisman that now Celeste Morn wears around her neck. And basically, uh, she is offering uh, maybe a bit of a merger, so to speak. Uh, she wants to meet with Crate one Sith to another Sith uh, to talk about uh, the future. And Crate, of course, uh, is dubious about this. She shows him Cade, who, you know, he supposed that she knows that he values. Um, he pretends that he doesn't value Cade. Of course, Cade being the one who has the ability with his dark side healing power to potentially heal Crate of the Yuzhan Vong growths that are pretty much destroying him and trying to take him over at this point. And uh, when he says, hey, you know, he's of no importance to me, she zaps him with force lightning. Forcing Crate to do what happens in pretty much any movie where, you know, kill him, it means nothing to me. And then they get ready to kill him. No, 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 kind of moment. Uh, he plays, you know, kind of the, the, the stereotypical movie character here. Um, he asks her to stop. And she slash he, if you want to call Karnas Mira, he um, basically says, you know, we're going to meet. Come to Had Abaddon. Come alone. Um, if others come with you, Cade is dead. Of course, he's not going to go alone. He's going to bring other Sith with him. But the stage is set now for this encounter on Had Abaddon. The whole idea was to draw out Crate so that Cade and his team can assassinate him. The idea being that if you take out Crate, the Sith will fall into chaos, presumably, uh, and that will allow uh, them to supposedly leave Cade and his crew alone. Yeah, right. But at the same time, would open up the door for Rowan Fell to be able to take back control of the Empire. But remember, Rowan Fell also wants the Mirror Talisman, which was a big point of contention in our last episode, where basically um, he has opened up the idea that he would be willing to use this dark side weapon to get his throne back. And among the Imperial Knights, the only one that seems to have a, a definite uh, disagreement with this is Aslan Ray, though Ganner Krieg, who has a thing for Aslan, seems to be at least somewhat leaning in her direction, though whether it's because of her beliefs or because he also agrees that this is a bad idea to let the mere talisman get into the hands of Rowan Fell is something that is left up in the air. It seems a little bit more that it's leaning towards him just having that um, belief on his own. Um, but the stage is set for our upcoming conversation. Uh, but the stage is being set for our upcoming confrontation here. You know, one thing about the first scene that I kind of wish they would have done, I, you don't need to do it, but it would have been cool to see Darth Reeve bite a human and have that human change right in front of him as well. I mean, yeah, they saw him change, but they really didn't get a concept as to what, you know, what it was. 
you know, Kraid says, were you attacked by, you know, Kate? And he goes, no, the woman did it. She had these monsters and one of them bit me. And then uh, he changes. But I think it'd be cool if once he changed, he'd attacked, you know, one of the, the Sith Lords right next to him. And, you know, while he's done that, then have Havoc kill the one. And while the other guy's on the ground, then that guy starts to change too. kind of give you more of like a, whoa, hey, wait, what do we got going on here? But I mean, Darth Malady does serve it enough by saying that she recognizes what it was. You know, it's an ancient Sith alchemy, my lord. You know, and she talks about how, you know, there's a holocron that speaks of creatures that caused a plague on ancient terrace. So, you know, you do have that tie in and it works. But when you get to the fact that Celeste is now talking and saying that she's Harkness Muir and the way that the speech box is going, you do have to kind of question how that's happening. Did she just allow Muir to come forward or was she adopting a voice? I mean, how did that play? Because later in this issue, you kind of get the feeling that Muir is actually running the show at times and that there's like a, a Bruce Banner and the Hulk kind of thing where Banner's inside seeing what's going on and can assert his will every now and again when he's able to. And that's not quite clear to me as to how that rolls. I mean, you get the feeling like it's all part of Cade's plan, but the, the fact that her speech box has changed to Carnus's as well throws me as a reader off, whereas you didn't have to throw me off. You could have had Celeste Morn's speech bubbles and I would have still got the same impression. Okay, Celeste is pretending to be Harkus Mirror. And then you could have done it later where it went to the Sith Red and it would have been more clear. Okay, Mirror's in charge now. Whereas right now I'm just, I'm scratching my head. Is Mirror in charge right now? And he's just decided to play along with the plan? Is like maybe this is his way of getting closer to this Darth Krayat? Or maybe he just wants to get close to Krayat and Kate alone so he can assess which one of these two force using bodies he'd rather usurp? I mean, that wasn't too clear. But the plan works, and I like the way that that moves forward. That brings us into uh, basically the Sith on their way. Uh, the, the one Sith, that is. You have, uh, among just, you know, servants and such, mainly you have Darth Strife. You have Darth Talon, who is now fully healed from Claws of the Dragon. You have Darth Weirlock Third, who, of course, is sort of the right-hand man of Krayt. And then Darth Krayt, of course, himself. They're heading out to Had Abaddon, and on the way, Weirlock, who, of course, is someone who has studied... Uh, Sith history in great detail. He's the one who was looking into Sith history to try to find a way to save Crate from the Vong Gross and everything. Uh, he tells us the background of the Talisman, and this is being told essentially from a Sith point of view, so it has a little bit of detail lacking in some of the backstories that we got before. And we get this cool sequence in which they explain Carnus uh, Muir as going back to the Hundred Years Darkness, um, and we get an image in which we first see him very young with a uh, kind of a goatee going on, and or at least a, a chin fuzz going on, and what looks very much like cornrows and uh, a big old ponytail in the back, uh, show how uh, that leads to the con confrontation with the Jedi on Corbos, right, that was played up in uh, some of the backstory stories that we've gotten before, at least some of the backstory um, uh, guidebooks we've gotten before, but which we see playing into the Jedi Academy Leviathan comic series at one point. Um, and how he manages to escape after that, or that he and some of the Sith managed to escape their defeat at Corbos, uh, that Mir must have been one of them, and then we see how they find the ancient Sith species, which is the group that they take over and wind up becoming supposed Dark Lords of the Sith, from Dark Jedi to Dark Lords of the Sith, because they are lording over the Sith species. Uh, it's kind of cool that in that shot, they show him with kind of the... He kind of has like a, uh, a Donald Trump going on. It looks like he's got kind of a comb over 
happening because he's kind of bald on one side of his head and has hair on the other side that looks like it's kind of swooshed over until we immediately move into an even further passage of time when he's actually developed the Muir Talisman and we see him uh, gray-haired and bald uh, and says that he basically has left or preserved his uh, mind, his essence, inside the talisman and finally see his dead body as a talisman attaches itself to a blue-skinned individual. Um, and there's this question, you know, whether or not this person, this Carnesmere, who had these great Sith abilities back in the day, could he actually be one who could save Krait? And we get a little bit of foreshadowing here. Because Krait talks about how, you know, he, um, he will soon be a mindless thing or a corpse if he's not healed. He says, I created the one Sith to impose order on chaos and unite the galaxy under my rule. But I fear my Sith order, my vision, will not survive my death. To which Weirlock answers, for three generations, my family has served you, Lord Crate. Your vision of one Sith, one galaxy united, is too great for even death to take. As one Sith, we will find a way, I swear it to you. Um, opening up the possibility that, I know it's supposed to sound as though he's saying, you know, we'll find a way to save you, my lord. But it's much more of a, we'll find a way to go on without you if we have to, Sparky. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll make your vision come true, boss. I'll make sure of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's it'd be like you know the the idea that um, uh, it's sort of the neo-Nazi thing now, I guess, the sense that you know Hitler may be dead, but they carry on some of the ideals that he lived by, as twisted and evil as they were. It kind of makes um, uh, Weirlock into the neo-Nazi in this case. Um, but they finally do arrive on Had Abaddon, and of course, it's a trap. Um, as they finally meet, it's Crate meeting face to face with Celeste, with Cade, supposedly in chains. Um, uh, she winds up zapping Crate to prove that yes, she really can heal him. Kind of a similar uh, Force Lightning type of effect that we see when Cade uses that healing power as a way of saying, you know, look, you know, uh, I can help you because her offer essentially is. You know, I'll heal you, but then you'll wear the talisman, and together, Carnesmere and Darth Crate as one entity will be who's out there ruling the galaxy. But while this is essentially the distraction, Cade, of course, he's not really a prisoner. It's all a trap. He very quickly frees himself, uh, and I like the fact that it, it's not so much that he frees himself and pushes Darth Talon, who is supposed to be securing him, away, as he frees himself pulls his lightsaber to him and ignites it in midair so that it blocks her blade as it comes forward. And then he catches it. A nice, uh, cool little action moment that would have been great on film to kick off what amounts to the rest of this issue in many ways being a knockdown dragout battle that carries over into the next issue that's mostly a knockdown dragout battle. Well, when they have that scene where they're back in the past and they show them all doing their stuff the seven millennia ago, that's my bread and butter. I love the lore type stuff in that regard and the fact that it ties all together. Uh, you know, you mentioned the hair and I find it funny because, you know, when he's younger and stuff, he's got a lot of hair and he's got like these dreadlocks and stuff. But it gives you the idea that, that he lived quite a while. But one thing that they had mentioned that I found was very interesting was uh, – like many dark siders of that time, he used the power of the Force to twist life itself into monstrous creations. Some sources say he had a hand in the creation of the Leviathans. These powerful dark siders made a last stand on the planet Corbos against Jedi hunters and powerful dark side rivals. That was interesting to me because, as far as I remember, I don't remember there being any rival Jedi dark siders teaming up with these with these Jedi hunters. So it's kind of like 
hmm, that, 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 is that new? I mean, and why are they called Jedi Hunters? Or are they hunters that are Jedi and they just give them the name Jedi Hunters because they're Jedi Hunters, not Jedi Hunters? Well, it, sounds, uh, it sounds like they're, they're saying dark side rivals, as in rivals within the Sith, or what will eventually be the Dark Lords of the Sith, um, who are fighting against them for dominance. You get that when you look at the Book of Sith, where it gives some of the background of this conflict where, you know, that. They wind up sort of, they're, they're thrust together as the Dark Lords of the Sith as a group because they happen to be the ones who escape. But even then, there's still that normal Dark Jedi slash Sith power struggle going on amongst them. Something we tend to see oh. with any Sith outside of the One Sith, although frankly by the end of Legacy you get the sense that the One Sith is kind of sliding back into that same, you know, uh, one to have the power, one to crave it type of thing where um, there's the rivalry building at least between a couple of our Sith here. Okay, well then that makes a little more sense. And the other one that 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 I like is, you know, it talks about like many Sith, he he sought a way to defy death itself. His philosophy, however, was not to preserve his body, but his mind, his essence. Mir created not simply a holocron, but the talisman. Not simply a holocron. So does that mean that the talisman is also a holocron? I mean, because that that's kind of what I was getting out of that. I was like, oh, so there's a whole other side of this talisman that could have been potentially untapped even, but. I, I like the concept there because it was concepts we've seen before where, you know, Sith has put their spirit inside this holocron or another thing. But I like the fact that he took it a step beyond. It was like it wasn't just a holocron. He made it something more. That was that was really cool. And, and of course, you already touched on it. The fact that Warlock said as far as, you know, the one Sith, we all swear it to you that that whole aspect was just great because it foreshadows things to come. Love that stuff. Love the angle of where it goes. And when they had the moment again where uh Celeste is playing up the mirror thing the, the speech bubble gets me kind of going, well, you know, is that really her? Because what she's saying totally sounds like what mirror would say, you know, especially when he goes, I propose the Alliance, you must kill the creature. I ride and then free me. And when you, and then when we are joined, I will heal you. Your power will be mine and my power will be yours. And together we will dominate the galaxy as you have not been able to do alone in that infected and failing husk you call a body. And of course, Kray wants the gesture of good faith, which like for all intents and purposes, this is the one screw up in their plan. Like if they're really out there to kill Darth Kray, this moment should not have happened <laughs> because she goes up there and she starts doing it. And, yes. Yes. I sense the alien seeds within you seeking to expand their domain, to consume your flesh together. We must focus. And she starts doing the blast, you know, and he's like, no, do not interfere. It's working. Now I understand. That was bad. <laughs> it's working. Yeah. It's working. Yippee. We're all doomed. But when the lightsaber comes, when Cade calls that lightsaber, I honestly, I didn't catch the fact that it had ignited and blocked. I mean, yeah, it's it's right there, but I don't know why for some reason I thought it was already in his hand. That, that would be awesome to see in a live action flick. I mean, that, and then you even have like a little, a little motion of it flipping around last minute. Like you could even have had it come like near her face even. Like they could add another whole scene that that would be so great. And I missed that the first time through. That's an awesome little action pack, two panels right there, man. I gotta say, I think that the, the trap isn't so much that she is speaking as Mir or pretending to meet him. I think that's actually him. Uh, the, the way that things play out throughout the rest of these issues makes it certainly seem as though this really was Crate, or it was a Karnas Mir talking to Crate. It's just that she essentially let him speak and she was able to reassert control 
um, mm-hmm. if things got out of hand. Because as soon as uh, Cade and Talon start fighting and uh, Shado, Ganner, Draco, and Aslan jump out from wherever the heck they've been hiding uh, to confront yeah. the others, you get this whole, Yarg! I think is how yeah. you're supposed to pronounce that. You know, control is mine! Die, Sith! And she she rests control back. Of course, the, the dialogue balloon goes back to normal. Uh, mm-hmm. Crate, of course, is willing to to take the deal that Karnas Mir had said, so now he's going to try to kill her um, as his primary goal. You know, that, that he doesn't need Cade anymore. If he can take her, then that's all that he would need. And we wind up getting basically what amounts to kind of the way that Star Wars often works in that you have one giant battle, kind of like the, the Battle of Endor. And yet because we have so many characters involved, we're getting the battle uh, as if we have a bunch of sort of running battles happening at the same time. In this case, mostly being duels. We have uh, Dark Strife fighting against a whole bunch of rat ghouls that are called in by Celeste. We have Shado fighting against Darth Malady, who we usually don't see in combat. Usually she's the one kind of manipulating things behind the scenes, which is kind of cool. And we get Cade, of course, because they need this sort of return to these two characters after Claws of the Dragon, Cade fighting against Darth Talon. And in the process, she's basically trying to play on him and mess with his mind at the idea that, you know, it wasn't so much that he was just, you know, keeping his appearances when those two were together back in Claws of the Dragon, that he had wanted it, that uh, his body is responding to her uh, even now as back then. You know, lust and anger, Sith emotions and so forth, uh, which of course angers him uh, and is is driving him on uh, in the combat here. But of course, at this point, he's different than he was back in Claws of the Dragon. He has learned a little bit more about wanting to control the dark side within him and wanting to be essentially a better man, at least in some respects. So he doesn't give in to this stuff. He basically just force pushes her away. You know, got your dark side right here, witch. And I got to say, every time I read that, I kind of wish that it had been something other than witch and started with the B because it would have been just as in keeping with the character <laughs> um, and with all the other you know, real world swearing that's wound its way into Star Wars. I mean, that would have made sense, too. Um, uh, the key here, though, that, that launches us off into the next issue is something that uh, we, of course, got back in the second issue of Legacy's Part of Vector here that we looked at in our last episode, which is this whole idea that Rowan Fell wants the talisman as a means of, you know, Crate needs to die, yes, but that still leaves the other Sith out there, and Rowan Fell could use the talisman to control these uh, rat ghouls and basically wipe out the Sith or turn the Sith that exist into mindless, monstrous beasts for him to control as warriors. Um, so the Imperial Knights group, that is Ganner, Draco, and Aslan, split up. Draco basically just tells Aslan and Ganner to go and help make sure that Crate gets killed, whereas Draco is going to go after the talisman himself. Um, and there's, there's again another moment where Aslan is, is not willing to allow this to happen. She says it's corrupt, it's evil, it'll corrupt the Emperor, she won't allow it, but Draco it just... You know, kind of parts ways with her, says, screw it, you know, force pushes her. He's out of there, and he's going to do what he thinks is right. Because, again, his goal is to end this war so he can be with Mara CFL. He's so blinded by wanting to be with her that it makes him not even consider the consequences of what might happen if Fell gets his hands on it. It's not even so much duty as it's his love for her. Um, of course, he is no match for Celeste, and very quickly she manages to incapacitate him briefly, uh, pull his lightsaber away from him, um, and as in doing so, uh, Karnas Mir manages to get control back of Celeste. 
um, saying that the emperor would use it as a weapon, that his emperor fell, and that he's not worthy of it. This is a Sith I desire, one rife with the power of the dark side. Uh, after I slay you and your minions, I will impale the Jedi and make Skywalker and his lackeys my rat ghoul slaves. Then I will take Crate's mortal body as my own. Why else do you think I cooperated in this imbecilic charade, right? Because going back to the cooperation earlier in the issue where yeah. he's, he's used to draw Crate in, but Mir really is making an offer. He really does want Crate's body, so to speak, um, in a non-sexual way this time around. Uh, and uh, we end the issue essentially with um, Weirlock battling his way into a... Huge mess of rat ghouls that seem like they are dogpiling on top of Crate, who finally uses dark side force lightning to zap the rat ghouls, uh, and gives us a, what I think is sort of a fitting line to end the issue uh, as we lead ourselves into the last part of the arc, the last part of uh, Vector, and the last part, at least for a while, of Crate's tenure as a major character in Legacy, which is, it is time for an ending. You know, there's only one thing I say that they missed an opportunity here. You know, in all the other series, we had visions of the main characters wearing the talisman and ruling. Now, it wouldn't work with Cade because Cade doesn't lust after the power, but it would work for Crate. And they could have easily slipped a scene in here where we saw Crate with the talisman on, embracing Muir and becoming this chosen one, or, or heck, you could even like play with the Sathari prophecy a little and be like, well, maybe that was supposed to be the Sathari kind of angle, but it would have been cool to see a vision of crate with the mere talisman and the galaxy finally completely 100% under his control, his vision of the one Sith finally coming to fruition and then having it fall apart because of what Cade does, because it just wouldn't work having Cade do it, but it did. It was a running theme through all the other ones and they didn't have anything like that, which it makes sense because why would you have Cade do it? Cade never had the lust for power. Even Luke had a lust for power. Why? Because he was trying to fight the Empire. He needed the power to do it. He was still a weak Jedi. That made sense. It played into the part at that moment. Um, I like the fact, though, that that it talks about, you know, why else would I, I you know, Mirror, he talks about why else would I play along. Uh, that works. But when there's that fight between Aslan Ra and Draco, and he throws her down. He's like, obey my orders or, and then Ganner gets up in between him and he's like, deal with Mord and Terry's master Ra and I will deal with the usurper. So he gets between him and he's just like, I'll make sure she does her job. You do what you do. I'm keeping you two apart. You know, it's like, he's recognizing there's a darkness in there, but instead of confronting it, he's just going to split them up. And I, I like, I like that character. I really like the Ganner character. I don't know. Maybe it's the name. I, I just really dig it. But when, when Draco shows up, it's still Celeste Moore, and she goes, I could feel your intent, Master Draco. From half a planet away, you are not a subtle man. No surrender. And then Mir comes back. Not to you, pitiful imperial slave. You want the talisman for your emperor to use as a weapon. He is not worthy of it. And then, of course, you know, the rest that you had talked about. And I love the fact that, yeah, it was just a force push that knocks him out. He slams his head. But when Krayt starts getting mad and does his enough, you have to wonder, is that just regular Sith lightning or is he using his newfound ability? You know, is he trying to cure these Rackles? I mean, it, and that's something I wonder about, too, because, you know, Cade is able to do it, but he does it before anyone's changed. Is there a possibility that you could 
change them back from the Rackles into people? I mean, we never, that's not even explored, but you have to kind of question, you know, what's going on at this moment with Crate? Is it just Force Lightning or is he testing his newfound knowledge? I don't know. Either way, I love the way it ends. It's got the close-up of the eyes, the Sith eye, the robotic eye. You know, you can see the mask. You can see his skin underneath it. I love it when they do those things with Darth Krayt. You know, some of my favorite covers are those up-close and personals. Just great panels, great art, great story. Which finally brings us into Legacy number 31, which is not just part four of Vector in this, but also Vector part 12 of 12. Uh, The end of this massive crossover cross-through that they had been hyping up like crazy at the time. And you know, I guess I I guess I I tripped up characters here and all the craziness. I guess it's Strife at the end of the previous issue uh, who's making his way toward that big old dog pile of uh rat ghouls that's piling onto uh Darth Crate before he uses the lightning because Weirlock is actually still back up on the relentless, back up on the Sith ship. It would have been perhaps nice to not just have to see Strife or whoever that was back in the previous issue, just in shadows so we would know exactly who it is. Because with his hair whipping around, it looks like it was supposed to be the horns uh, on Weirlock. But Weirlock is up above. Uh, he's got stormtroopers with him. Um, he goes ahead and heads down with them because he senses that Crate will need him soon. Crate uh, is attacking Celeste at this point. Again, it's sort of this multi-part battle. Crate is attacking Celeste because, uh, well, let's face it, Celeste is... Uh, the object he needs to kill if he's going to get the power of the talisman. But also, you know, he says, you, you should have thought twice about attacking me, Karnas Mirror. She's like, no, no, no. You know, is the Jedi, not I, Mirror says, that betrayed you, fool, etc., etc. Um, so that, well, you look like the same thing, and it's not like when you talk I can hear the boxes, or I can see the little change of your word balloons. Uh, I always kind of try to imagine this as sort of like the Stargate thing with the uh, uh, the Goa'ul. Where every time Karnas Muir speaks, like, ruh, 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 compared to when she speaks. But, uh, you know, who knows, honestly, at this point. Because um, the only indication that we get is the different little red word balloons and such. Um, but the battle continues and continues. Um, we get a brief moment of battle between Cade and Strife. And it works out all right. But, man, the dialogue in that on that page for that brief little confrontation to me is just... It never quite hits me well when Cade acts like an adolescent goofball. Um, And where sometimes you get this terminology used that you would see on forums of people flaming each other rather than something that makes sense in the heat of battle. Uh, We have Cade saying to Strife, So, you the noob? And noob just being added was already frustrates like noob as in newbie but noob is there but newbie is not really how is exactly this working it was you even named a story with that title back earlier in legacy that term is just annoying to have in at least this fight if not in star wars in general um i am Darth strife i am death you're just another sith moron yeah since you can't cuss really because this is you know a star wars comic book you know sith moron Okay, but you would think that if they're in the middle of a fight, you should say something a little bit stronger than that. Maybe if it's in another language or something. Um, and then you're he Darth says, Nils' replacement, huh? <laughs> Anything and, but that. Yeah, and then of course he dodges a swipe, and as he looks at Stripe, what finally gets Stripe to go and be all, all kinds of like a, a just enraged is Cade says, and I'm, this is not a joke. That your face ugly, or did you shave a womp rat's butt? Okay. 
Maybe if it said ass instead of butt, it might have worked. Maybe. But in the heat of battle, Kate is basically acting like a seven-year-old. And that, to me, that is, is, is bothersome. Uh, and it doesn't help that it's immediately followed by one of those instances where uh, it's like when Cade and uh, Jiraiya are talking in pirate terms. It's like they turn into like some sort of space Ebonicized language that they don't ever use otherwise. Cade says, Sin, I could use some boom about now. Always a need for boom. And Sin is boom's daddy. Again, it, the, the, the phrasing of it, to me at least, doesn't work. <laughs> it sounds like this this entire cast has just regressed to middle school or late elementary school, and we're going to have to pull them back to a level of maturity for the rest of the story. Um, it's a cool sequence. It's a, a quick battle, then um, uh, an explosion knocking out Strife once uh, a Cade knocks him uh, over towards the little uh, explosives. This Sin has a little explosive remotes that Sin has. That's great and all. But man, the dialogue on those two pages leaves a lot to be desired. A boom, boom, boom. Sin, throw the switch now. Let's go boom, whale. Whale. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that was. A, Somebody a else knows the out there brothers. I'll be schnookered. <laughs> you know, at the beginning, though, there's a moment where when the shuttle comes in, the shuttle looks different than the shuttle that lands. That, that threw me off. But I like the fact that we see there's three stormtroopers. They have their helmets off. One is like some lizard like dude. Another one just looks really demonic. And then you've got a Devarian female. I like the fact that they, you know, it's just a quick little panel, but it shows there's some diversity there amongst the stormtroopers. And, you know, when we get to the moment where they, they're all fighting and they're back to back, you know, Ganner and Aslan, you see Shao fighting. Uh, he's down there fighting with uh, Darth Malady, and they're almost back to back as, as well. You know, Malady's like, we witless base away. And she's like slashing and stuff. And he, I mean, they're literally almost back to back. I mean, they're, they're like got radicals between them. But you give that sense like, you know. The Pudu has hit so hard that even the Sith are, are fighting with the Jedi just to keep the Ragghouls completely back, you know. Uh, the whole Darth Strife thing, though, I really, I think it would have served better if they'd have gone with a with a hand taunt, you know, like, like you're nothing like Darth Nil. Because Nil, you know, Nil got chumped by this guy, and this guy even teased him later. So I, I think that would have served a lot better than the you know, Wampa's rat butt kind of scenario. Uh, when they do the kick though, and and Sin sends the uh, the remotes up, I, I I had no idea. Like you could see them up above, they're fighting. You see the sun, and then you see Sin down below, and you see sun coming down, and then you see the remotes come out of a crate. But you really have no idea what Sin's sitting in. Like he's not in a ship. I mean, where did he go? How did he climb down there? I mean, th that really made no sense to me at all whatsoever. So that kind of threw me off. And then you know. Did he blow him up? Is Darth Strife dead? Because all you see is just the, the explosion in his body. There's no tearing of clothes, no flesh flying off of his body. And yet in the, the panel right before it, it's like they literally like they almost went up his butt. So, I mean, you, he should be dead. I would expect a little more flaring of flesh and stuff. So that that one wasn't quite so so pointed out to you. But, yeah, the action's there. There's a lot of stuff going on. And then we move into the next one, you know, and. I don't know. I like I like the conflict going on between Celeste and, and Crate here, and then the fact that Malady steps up to help, you know, and she goes, we Sith stand as one, Jedi. I, I, I don't know. To me, it's like, this is the heart of what the Sith group is about, and somebody remembers. <laughs> That's right. So we move into, uh, we see Celeste, and she's battling with Crate. 
Uh, she at the moment is in control, but it, her, most of her conversation is going on between her and Karnas. Mirror, not her and Crate. It's almost like Crate is a distraction while she is trying to keep control of herself, thanks to Mirror trying to take control of her. And you get this massive blast of Force Lightning from Crate, added to uh, by, as you said, the arrival of Malady. And as she's being zapped with it, you know, she gets that very determined look on her face uh, as Karnas Mirror is basically whispering to her, you know, face the inevitable and surrender, Jedi, alone against Darth Crate, you would fail in time. Now another Sith has joined him. You cannot stand. You are not that strong. Surrender and die so that I may live. And, of course, we have the classic Star Wars, never, except this time Sid instead of screamed or whined, as the case may be. And this is the moment where everything kind of hinges. Um, Crate is, is overpowering her. Uh, we move away from the force lining and he's basically just still overpowering her with his lightsaber. Um, uh, basically he's giving her one chance to live, basically give herself over to the dark side, become his acolyte, master mirror together, uh, and she can serve him using the power that comes from mirror. Um, everybody's seeing this going on, but they're all in the midst of battle themselves. The one who is able to get away from what's happening is Aslan. And we have a quick shot where she basically, it's kind of hard to tell what was happening without knowing what's coming next, but she basically is seen behind Ganner. She jumps, plants a foot on a piece of the scenery, and then jumps away from it. As Karnas Mir is able to get control of uh, a Celeste for one more moment, right? He says, you know, power compared to me, speaking to Crate, you are a mere Sith zygote. I was one of those who created the Sith. Uh, uh, we get he's she at least has this force lightning going around her that looks like she's creating this kind because again the last time we saw a shot of her battling uh, crate there is no lightning. Uh, he says I created my own Sith and zaps her with his force lightning, and we get this moment where she's basically blocking it with one hand or she's firing her own force lightning. Either way, there's a lot of lightning uh, going on. I thought she was absorbing point. it because yeah, it looks, of what she said. Kind of like she's absorbing it. Um, and we get another of those times where the, the word balloons, the word balloon for her kind of uh, blends into the one for Karnas Mirror, so it looks like they're both speaking at the same time. You know, I feed on your power and make it my own. So yeah, she's absorbing it uh, in the Force Lightning. But as she's doing that, from behind comes Aslan, who has done that vaulting off uh, with a, a kind of a stereotypical martial arts movie, hi, thing. And she puts her lightsaber blade through Crate. Um, it looks like it's going to go through his neck based on the way it's pointed as she's coming down, but it goes through like his upper uh, right-hand chest, like right around where the shoulder connects. Uh, and See, in, I thought she did. I thought it went through the through the back of the neck, but came down lower through the, sh the shoulder because she came down from an upward angle. It could. It just it's it for that to happen. I mean, it's the way that it's drawn doesn't make it look like that makes sense. From an angle standpoint, unless it goes through the neck, through the chest, and she's coming down with it, so it's also cutting downward through part of crate. Um, otherwise, we have what amounts to a magic lightsaber blade. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. <laughs> um, and, of course, watching this is uh, the Sith-eyed Celeste controlled by Muir. And um, it's interesting that it's, it zooms in not on her eyes, but on the little glowing eye-type thing in the talisman, as I guess she's recognizing uh, what exactly is going on and the, the moment that has been created here by Aslan uh, stabbing into Crate. It, it reminded me very much of the Sword of Omens from uh, Thundercats, 
in a way, the way that this eye <laughs> is looking, uh, or the eye of Thunder, or whatever it was called. Uh, and she said, you are nothing, your time is over. And she finally, she blasts Crate with Force Lightning, but she's indiscriminate about it. And you get this massive blast of Force Lightning that not only takes Crate, but even as she's pulling her lightsaber blade out, and it does look like it's just the back, you can see in that next shot, um, the lightsaber blade is being pulled, and you see where it's coming out of his back instead of his neck. Um, the lightsaber blade is being pulled out. She gets caught in that blast, so much so that you get a moment kind of like that sort of blink and you'll miss it, you must pause or do slow motion on Return of the Jedi, uh, where the zapping of Luke looks like a skeleton. Um, you get this moment where you see Crate's skeleton, and you see uh, Aslan Ray's skeleton, and the electrical blast is basically catching them both until Aslan falls down, uh, very much charred herself, and Crate gets blasted to the point where it's not just frying him, uh, the force of it, it's like there's a force push um, that she does with the lightning still around him. So it's sort of an instant switch over from one force power to the next, and she blasts him, still electrified, and then smoking on the way down, off the rooftop, and down to fall all the way down from this cliff face that they have been on. So Crate is not only uh, zapped he and fried, essentially, uh, though protected by some of his armor, he has also just had a major, major fall. Uh, and it turns out that the one who brings down Crate, at least for now, isn't Cade, as many of us had expected. It turns out that the one who's able to bring him down is the Sith-slash-Jedi combination of Celeste and Karnas Muir. Um, I mean, that was a surprise to many, uh, but what carries on from here is more so uh, the fate of Crate and the fate of Aslan, um, and what it means for our characters rather than for they themselves in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I, I liked how when it's all said and done, you know, Crate gets all mad. You self-mongering witch! You killed Aslan! Our deal was to kill Crate. Crate is dead. Did you think you and yours would escape unscathed? Aslan Ra knew the dangers when she attacked. She accepted her destiny. I make my own destiny! Keep fooling yourself, Skywalker. Like Aslan Ra, I accepted my fate. Mine is controller and keeper of Karnas Muir for these long millennia. And of course, Muir is there. You are losing control. <laughs> you know, and, and that's that gets back to that thing where I keep saying, you know, he's been the life force that's been keeping her alive and young. You know, she's been sapping off his energy. What kind of energy does he have as a Sith that she's been able to stay alive all this time you know, I mean, he's darker than dark. That has to be making an effect. You know, and she even admits it. But yes, I am losing control. I've never met anyone quite like you, Cade Skywalker. You walk so close to the dark side, and yet you do not desire, even in some small way, the temptation of power that the mere talisman can give you. You know exactly what must be done without anger, without fear. And he goes, yeah, I know the song. We take what we are given and we do what we must do. You. Zane. He did send someone after all. He sent you. And of course, you know, then he ignites the lightsaber blade and, and it strikes her through the chest. But that moment where she says you and she looks up and she sees Zane and she goes, he did send someone after all. He sent you. To me, and I, I know it's a wild theory out there, but I, I'm sticking to it. I truly believe Zane is a Skywalker. All the Skywalkers come from Carrick. He was the one that kicked this bloodline going. You know, I mean, how else would he have sent for him? Through the bloodline. You know, he had a kid, they had a kid, they had a kid down the line, and boom, now you have that tie. 
Otherwise, there's no tie. Every character in this story has been a Skywalker aside from Zane. How could Zane have sent him? The only way I can conceive of is that through the bloodline, that this is the same genetics, the same legacy. All right. Well, okay. So, I mean, it's, it's, it is cool to see that, that she now sort of accepts her fate. She recognized the fact that she is going to have to die. Um, there's no way that she can live with Karnas Mira still trapped inside her because she is slowly losing control. As we saw back throughout this fight, it was going back and forth between whether it was Celeste or Karnas Mira. So she needs to die, but there needs to be a way to get rid of the talisman. Uh, Cade happens to be one who doesn't desire power, so he probably wouldn't use the talisman, but there is that question, how is he going to get rid of it? We're still wondering, how is he going to get rid of it? What's going to happen if Cade gets his hand on the, uh, the talisman? But they give us that head fake. He's pointing the lightsaber at her chest, is about to stab into her to kill her, uh, but she, yeah, she has that moment of, you, Zane, he did send someone after you, or after all, he sent you. And we even see it goes from her face to Zane's face, kind of in a vision, uh, to Cade's face, really emphasizing the similarities between the two, and then back to her as she essentially takes her moment of peace before he finally turns on the lightsaber and kills her. I am with you in the sense that it looks like the intent of that shot, especially because it's designed as mirrored images, is meant to suggest that somehow there's a relation between Cade and Zane. Except, Freddie Lees, who's one of the editors on this Star Wars line, um, or Freddie Lins, excuse me, uh, who's the assistant editor at this point, flat out says in a letters page of, uh, of KOTOR, that there is no relation between Zane and the Skywalker line. I would. This really seems to suggest that there is one, but apparently they flat out said, and I didn't know this until you know, looking it up of all places on Wikipedia um, and having to check it myself to make sure the information is actually accurate in this case. Um, but yeah, uh, apparently according to the editorial staff, there is no connection between Carrick. And Skywalker, which seems to completely fly in the face of what we're getting with this quick shot. Um, it's odd for her to say, you know, he did send some for Send? Not really. It was random circumstances. You could just as easily say that, you know, the crew of the Uhu Melee sent Cade. Or, <laughs> you know, Leia and Abel and Basso and Dina sent Cade. Um, that is one moment that if it's not meant to suggest there is a connection between the Carricks and the Skywalkers, it really probably shouldn't have been in the issue. It makes me wonder if what the writers wanted to do with the character was different than what the editorial staff uh, had planned for the characters there. Yeah, I mean, and I, I still hold to the theory because it's not like they couldn't rescind on what that editorial director dude said. Uh, one thing I also like, though, is when he's holding the lightsaber above her, he's got his hand cocked and the tip of the lightsaber is doing kind of like uh, the arrow point is up. And then when he ignites the blade, he extends his hand and twists his wrist kind of like a karate punch. And now it's aimed down when he stabs her through. So, I mean, he he full on commits to it you know he doesn't just turn on the blade and let the blade do the work he actually plunges the blade through her chest so i like that as well that was that was a cool little touch there yeah good attention to detail when it comes to the way that it should be pointing depending on the way that his arm is positioned um but that was that was yeah. a good moment where it really kind of built up the realism of it um, and then the indiana jones aspect of what yeah. happens to her body was pretty cool too <laughs> yeah she stabbed through and now that she dies 
it's not keeping her alive anymore, so I guess her age is supposed to be catching up to her, and she just turns into a quick skeleton and into dust. And that, as cool as it looks and as Indiana Jones as it is, has me go, really? Because if it was really keeping her body alive for that long, shouldn't she just now die as if her body is the age that it appeared to be? What is it about the fact that she is now dead and it's now no, no longer keeping her alive that causes her body to essentially regress as if she had uh, all those years catch up to her at once? That was a cool well, moment, but at the same time, it's, it's one of those things that really, it's believable only in the sense that this is what would happen in a movie as opposed to this is what would seem to make logical sense. Well, I've got to ponder just now, okay? When she lost the talisman and Leia got it, she didn't immediately turn to Ash. The only thing I could think of the difference here is when she got the talisman with Leia, you know, they did make her look like about a little years, some years older. So that 20-year gap could have could have possibly taken some effect, but probably not. The talisman itself probably kept her alive during that 20-year period. But before that, it was just the oblet that kept her alive. So she hadn't aged, you know, because the oblet kept her in stasis. She was perfectly preserved. Then after that, it was the talisman keeping her alive. So now that the talisman has left her, she died. Because I don't think at any other point after that, after the 100-year gap, does she lose the talisman. She's had it on her the entire time. This is the first time that she has lived those 100 years out of the stasis chamber. And maybe that's why when she loses it, this time she turns to dust because that kept her alive during that 100 years, even though it was never actually said. Well, you know, she talks about, well, she drew the power from him, but maybe that was how she drew it was through the talisman. But it's not the losing it that causes her to turn to dust this time. It's still on her when she turns to dust. It's the fact that she is True. now dead that causes the body to turn to dust. It's just sort of that thing where, you know, if it was keeping her alive, it, 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 okay, put it this way. If what's happening now is that the fact that she is dead is causing the body to somehow regress as if the talisman had never been keeping her alive, it should be that her body is simply wherever the talisman left it. What is it that's causing the talisman to not only stop keeping her alive, but what? Cause her body to regress as if it had lived those 130 plus years, that all of a sudden she lives those 130 plus years in terms of body decay at once? That's why it doesn't seem like it makes sense. Again, it, it's a great movie-style moment, but it doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense that her body yeah. would somehow you know, turn to dust. But Maybe it, the talisman sucked everything that was left of her to make this one bid to jump at Cade. <laughs> perhaps, because it does come off of her, uh, jumps at Cade, and instead of getting Cade's neck and or grabbing his arm and then crawling up to the neck, as we saw even, I think, in Shado's little vision, uh, it grabs onto Cade by the, the, the arm, like the wrist area, uh, which definitely looks pretty cool on him. And we get our moment of, yes, at last I am free. That pathetic Jedi did not understand my power or my patience. It is time for my destiny to be fulfilled. I will create armies of rat ghoul, which apparently must be also another way of saying rat ghouls plural, because there is no S on it, to ravage the galaxy. Then I will rule. And yeah, Cade's not buying into it because again Cade doesn't want the power and is very strong-willed. Yeah, turn down the cackling Sleemo. Just gets annoying after a while. Again, as soon as he starts acting all pirate, he starts dropping words. Not it just gets annoying, but just gets annoying after a while. Um, Celeste Moore knew exactly what she was doing. You fell into the same trap we laid for Crate and went for the same bait. Me. I guess all Sith really are stupid. You think your stinking talisman so carking perfect mirror? 
Well, it ain't. And this is where finally it makes sense that Cade must be the one to end this story. I can see every flaw. All I have to do is pour the force into the cracks. Remember, this is the Shatterpoint thing. Cade found back in Claws of the Dragon that his ability to pour the force into something to heal the cracks can also be used to find the cracks and shatter it, as he learned from the spirit of Cole Skywalker. Now he uses those shatter points to pour that energy into the talisman and literally shatter it into pieces. And with it, we assume that Karnasmir's spirit is essentially fading away. And we see that because the spirit uh, itself is trying to stop him. It's like seen over him like, no, in a sense. Um, but even as Kate is standing there looking down at the, the, the remnants of the talisman, you get this little whoosh, it looks like, of the spirit um, being pulled away. I like the fact that this is something that, that has meaning. It's not just that Cade happens to be the one who's there when the Vector Saga ends, but his very rare ability is what allows the saga to end. There's a purpose not just for him, but for Vector. Yeah, and that whooshing away of the spirit is also cool. I mean, you know, there's still that question of what happens to the Sith when they die. Some Sith have been able to retain their presence, as we've seen with the Talisman. I just like the fact that even though the talisman was destroyed, there something happened to the spirit. It just didn't dissolve away. In a sense, it does, but you see it dissolve away. It's just like, oh, well, the talisman's gone and he's gone. No, you get to see the wisping away of it. And I thought that worked, you know, and of course, then it's it, it turns to Aslan Ra, who's still alive. She's still bleeding, uh, still breathing. And of course, you know, Cade's like, I can heal you. I, to me, this is like, this is where for him things can start to get dangerous again because I mean, he just turned down all this power and now he's going to have to pull on even more power than ever before. Not a very safe place to be after just turning down so much other power. Yeah. Cade using the dark side to keep her alive so they can get her to Kifix uh, back to Drew so that she can hopefully be healed. Uh, it, it opens up the door here. Um, it, it, of course it keeps up this idea of his connection with Aslan Ray and how's that going to play into things with Delia. So Aslan Ray is still around, but she is, uh, on the brink of death, so there's a question of, well, maybe they'll just resolve that by her dying, which thankfully they won't. They'll take a more creative way out of it. Um, it opens up more tension because Ganner wants to go with them, but the Jedi won't allow it. They have to find their own way off of Had Abaddon after their supposed betrayal, essentially, of wanting to keep the talisman as opposed to just killing Crate and such here. Um, and it moves our characters along on their own path. Kate is now, Kate and the Minot crew, along with Shado, are heading out their own way. The Imperial Knights have to report back to the Emperor somehow. When I like, I like the way that that leaves them. You know, Ganner, we have to leave now. We have our predators. We'll make our way back to Bastion. Report to the Emperor. We have important news. It's our duty, Ganner. And Ganner's standing there, looking off, watching the Minoc fly off with a really pissed off look. Duty, you know. And he and he says it quiet. I I just love it. You know. Again, I like the character. I really in this like four issues really came to really, really, really like his character. Wanted to see him actually take more of a center stage, in fact. And that brings us to the final scene, which is the game changer. Um, and the one that is going to set the stage for everything else we're going to see leading into Legacy War that eventually wraps up the series. Um, Darth Weirlock is able to recover Crate. right? Crate has fallen, he's been zapped by the Force Lightning, he's been fried... And he's gone kathump down the, uh, the whatchamacallit, down the cliff face. Now, Weirlock recovers him, uh, takes off the helmet. He recovers the helmet, 
And there's Darth Crate laying there, um, seemingly dead. Um, but he's groaning. Lord Crate, you live? Apparently, he used the Force to break the fall. He wants to get back to a back to tank. He says, made mirror begin healing in the Force. Saw how to heal myself. I can survive. My vision, my dream for one Sith will live. And this is where Weirlock sort of falls into the old pattern of the Sith. It is a magnificent vision, my lord. Sometimes, for the dream to live, the dreamer must die. And Weirlock, not Aslan Ray, not Celeste Morn, not Karnas Muir, seems to be the one who delivers the death blow, what we think is a death blow, to Crate. He fries Crate with force lightning and then takes his body with the force back onto the shuttle. What we will find is this is a game changer because it will allow Weirlock to be in control of the Sith for a very long time. And there's some question as to whether or not Crate uh, is alive or dead. He's seemingly dead. He'll be kept in stasis as if he is alive. And we'll find later on that maybe what Weirlock believes isn't necessarily what is true about the current status of Crate. But that was the big game changer to take Crate out of play as a leader of the Sith and allow Weirlock to be the one guiding the one Sith's actions for much of the rest of Legacy. Uh, Crate's obsession with Skywalker is no longer as much of an issue because now he can heal himself if he were to survive this, but he's going to be out of play thanks to Weirlock for a while. Yeah, and the Weirlock twist, like you know, some people saw it coming. I didn't. I thought it was a, a great little change up right there i mean and as we see later the way he uses it to his benefit is just brilliant uh i don't know i i loved i loved it because it works in so many levels i mean Cade isn't the one that actually had to kill crate you know and crate is just one tough son of a sith i mean look look he takes the force lightning he gets the uh the force lightning from mirror from aslan rod the, the saber through the back the force shove off the fall the fall itself doesn't kill him when he hits the ground then I'll, you know along comes warlock I mean, the guy goes through a lot. And all this while, he's got these slave seeds, these coral seeds, trying to kill him as well. I mean, talk about a powerful, powerful Force user this Ashrod Het character is. Uh, you know, in the way it ends, it, it to me, it, it's perfect. I mean, there's not a word said on the last panels, you know. I mean, it's all just him walking out with the body kind of thing, like holding it up like a trophy. And, you know, the other side of it, too, is when he leaves the shuttle, you see that, you know, Darth Malady, Darth Talon, and Darth Havoc, or uh, Darth Strife, are all within the little uh, back to chain chambers inside the shuttle itself. So it's kind of like he's collecting the remnants of things. I, I think he did a good job of picking up the pieces at the end, you know, and what we'll see later in the next series and stuff moving forward. I think it was a brilliant move on his part. Um, you know, beyond that, you know, as a series goes, you know, if you were to look at Vector from 1 through 12, you know, I, I, I'm conflicted because it had such highs and lows when you look at it from line to line that it's it's rough at times to follow the story. But when you're looking at it just from it, you know, if you just grab the vectors part one and two, I think you're going to get more out of Celeste Morn's character going that route than you were if you just pick up any one or single line. Uh, what about you, Nathan? Do you think that uh, as a whole it met its own A, B, and C? It's one, two, and three of the promises it made? Well, let's see. Okay. Uh, to make the events in the crossover mean something to the characters in each of the four series that changes the course of every series that it touches. Um, I, I gotta say, in that sense, it is a failed experiment. If it has to go by all of them. Uh, was it a game changer for, for uh, KOTOR? Absolutely. Uh, it manages to get him 
the key to the Sanctum of the Exalted, to know that it's on Odrin. It pushes him towards what's eventually going to happen in Vindication. So for Zane Carrick and the characters back in KOTOR, yes. Yes, it is a game changer. It does change the course of that series. Um, Dark Times? No, not really. The Uhumele's cargo is revealed, and one of the crew die, and nobody really cares because the next arc is going to focus on Das Janir for a while, so whatever for the crew of the quasi-unpronounceable ship. Um, it really just kind of feels like an eh part of the saga of Dark Times. Um, rebellion? Does it change the course of Rebellion? Kind of. It ends Rebellion. It's the final issues. Where could they have gone from here? Really hard to say. I mean... Luke is wary about his future, but that doesn't carry over into any other series, really. Um, we get uh, the Imperials having uh, been taken out in some cases by the Red Ghouls, and she escapes into space, but apparently she stays away from everybody for a long time. Um, I'm not sure that it would have changed the course of Rebellion, even if Rebellion had continued. So I'd say it's a fail for Rebellion. For Legacy, absolutely it is a game changer. Aslan Ray is going to come back. Uh, differently, the next time that we see her, a uh, crate is taken out of play. It's the culmination of a lot of stuff that's been happening in the last few arcs. It really built up. And I think that's really where Rebellion and Dark Times tended to fail. Um, that not only were they not particularly game-changing, it's partly because there wasn't a lot of lead-up to this story. Especially in Rebellion, it just kind of came out of nowhere. It didn't feel like it had built up to this point to allow that storyline to be a climax of anything in that sense. So, on the first one... Um, two successes, two failures. Um, second check mark, the series must be reader-friendly. The events in Vector must be easily accessible to both new and long-time readers. Again, I would say that it probably worked well enough for Dark Times and Rebellion because there's really not a whole lot going on. We don't need to know a whole lot about the characters in order to get it because the story is relatively shallow. Um, but uh, again, in Legacy and KOTOR, you need at least a little bit of background. I think with KOTOR, it was easier because it was the beginning of the story. By the time you get to Legacy, you need the background of the Legacy era, plus you need the background of the situation with Celeste. And they do it well when it comes to um, the dialogue building up some of the story, but I think that they probably only get a B rather than an A when it comes to uh, being new reader friendly, accessible to new readers at least when it comes to Legacy. But for longtime readers, it was a payoff to a lot of stuff. So... Uh, iffy on that one, kind of a half and half again. And then uh, readers must not feel as if they are forced to purchase issues of series they wouldn't otherwise read. Every chapter of Vector must work as a standalone story within the series in which it takes place. Um, I think that is the case with uh, KOTOR, and it is the case with Legacy. And to an extent, I guess they sort of managed to do that looking back on it now with Dark Times and Rebellion, in that it doesn't really connect to much of anything, so standalone is definitely the name of the game. Um, but again, it still it doesn't spend enough time delving into Celeste and the Talisman and whatnot, it seems like, in order to really give us uh, the depth of storytelling that we would have liked. So we would probably, in order to really enjoy those, have to read the other parts of Vector. So all in all, I can't say that Vector was a success. It was a success in KOTOR. It was a success in Legacy. Overall, as a crossover, we have to take all the parts into account, and in that sense, it was a failed experiment. Um, it is a good, sh good way of showing why, with Star Wars, the strength of Star Wars is not 
crossovers or even cross-throughs. It's the shared universe. It's the fact that you can have a character show up in one thing and then show up in another, and it doesn't have to be some huge crossover event. It's just, hey, they all exist in the same galaxy, and if it's the same time period, they might run into each other. What's the big deal? Um, in that sense, in trying to get away from what Star Wars does terrifically and turn it into something that's much more like what most comic book companies do a lot of the time with their big mega events, they managed to get far enough away from the storytelling style that Star Wars is used to that it seems like they fumbled it. They weren't quite sure how to catch the ball as it was being passed from one series to the next. So what they wind up with is two strong parts and two particularly weak parts that wind up causing the entire whole to flounder a bit. Uh, this just, it didn't act the way that it should. I, I love what it did for KOTOR and Legacy, but as a whole, I can't give this a passing grade. If anything, it's a, it's a C. And I'm going by the, the, Georgia, uh, the Georgia curriculum here where it's A, B, C, F. There are no Ds. Uh, in my part of Georgia. So it's it's just barely passing if it's passing at all. Um, it's really hurt by those middle sections. Yeah, I actually have to agree with your assessment. I, I would say KOTOR is probably definitely the, the uh, lead off when it comes to hitting all those boxes because of where it was in the series at the time. You know, Zane was doing a new thing. He was moved on from the original arc, was moving into another one. So it really did that whole, putting him on a whole new vector, really really did that well uh you know legacy definite wrap-up was great but again getting to that from the one to the other just didn't serve so well um i would actually give dark times a higher ranking over rebellion because i like the fact that at least they gave a purpose as to why she was out of the oblet but rebellion did such a poor job i mean we're just sending her or leaving her on the planet for one that was a great way to leave her there but then they pick her up and then they move her off the planet and send her on a ship and just send her out in space I think that was the biggest mistake. I mean, yeah, they, they kind of forced it around. Well, well, then she got on the ship and then she just stayed there. But again, it gets that whole thing that you mentioned at the beginning of the first issue or our last episode, uh, 116, where it's that whole head scratcher. Like, how in the heck? Why would she sit there for so long? What was she playing? Pazak all this time? I, I don't know. So that that regard, I it just it killed it for me. Um, I do like the concept. Uh, honestly, I thought they were going to go with a droid or something when they first talked about the concept of how they're going to have a character that goes through all these things. I, I legitimately thought a droid would have been the perfect way to go about it. You know, have a droid body, find a force user that's able to put his his body or, or maybe the talisman itself into the droid, kind of like the Iron Knights or something. That would have been an interesting twist. Uh, but the concept was cool. It was okay executed, but once you get into Dark Times and Rebellion, that's where it really hinders everything. So, you know, I, I'm just going to let your assessment stand, though, because, I mean, I mean you nailed all the critical points. Um, moving into the covers, though, uh, I will say, you know, 28 probably is one of my favorites of the entire series. Uh, it's got Celeste Moore sitting in the captain's chair, and she's holding onto her lightsaber, and it's got the, the bodies of the dead Rackles and the trooper armor and stuff behind her. Just something about it. I, I don't know what it is. It just it gives me that perfect creepy feeling, you know, that whole death troopers, the red harvest feel. I, I don't know. It, it gave it that horror, that horror genre feel to it. It, it. That just worked really well. 29, it's cool in an aspect. I don't really care for Cade and for Aslan Raw, the way their faces are drawn up. Uh, you know, 
Cade's got like a very He-Man kind of look to him and his arm kind of looks a little weird right from the elbow down, you know, the forearm. But it's the Rat Ghouls that I really like. I like the fact that it's taking place inside the docking bay of the ship. The Rat Ghouls are all there and like one of them's got the Stormtrooper helmet kind of like up covering his eyes and the mouths down below. I like that look. Again, it keeps that whole that whole horror motif going on. We get to 30. 30 kind of reminds me of KOTOR's internal art. Uh, whatever they're doing with Cade and, and Celeste Morn especially just looks really weird and the rat ghouls take on kind of like a, a horse dog look to them so i don't really care for that one 31 though i like 31 a lot cade's got the evil look he's got the talisman on his arm you've got the mirror uh spirit in the background cade's got the lightsaber and the grip where it's kind of face down but the way he's holding the lightsaber kind of gives it like a darth vader feel so i like that too and and the look of pure evil on cade's face just I don't know. It, it works. And the fact that the, the words on it, the galaxy restored to the Skywalkers, dot, dot, dot. It's like, ooh, that can't be good. Yeah. I I mean, they're all right. They're, obviously, the last one is the better one of the batch. I would say 28, it works well enough. I mean, it's a very dull cover, very dark colored cover. Uh, almost if this was a painting, you would think that the painting has been faded or something. So that's a little strange. Um, but it works. I mean, it's not a bad cover. It's just kind of a dull cover. Um, 29 works well enough until you start actually looking at the faces. And yeah, Cade looks somewhat not like himself. I can't think of who he, he reminds me of, but some actor he's reminding me of. Um, Hollywood Hulk Hogan. <laughs> I guess, sort of there. You know, it, it, and uh, you got Aslan Race, who's kind of got that, that you got to be kidding me look on her face. I guess if there was a... Uh, if there was a caption to have for issue 29, aside from a plague from the past, uh, perhaps it would be snap into a Slim Jim or something like that. Because um, that's <laughs> certainly the way that, that Cade looks. Cade looks like he should be out there advertising beef jerky. Um, and then you've got uh, 30. Like you said, it's pretty uh, – it's, it's uh, it looks good enough at first glance, but then you actually look at the faces again. And, yeah, Cade's got this crazy chin thing going on and it just – you know, it it's, it works as an exaggerated version of what we're seeing, um, but at the same time, it's it is kind of of a goofy look to them, but not nearly as goofy as the interior art of the Kotor stuff. So, um, shouldn't be all that concerned about it, I suppose. It is just cover art in this case. But then thirty one, yeah, thirty one is some of my favorite cover art of this era of Star Wars in general, let alone of Legacy. Um, uh, Cade with the the talisman on his arm, the blade pointed backwards, very much the Star Killer slash Ahsoka Tano style. Um, he actually looks like Cade Skywalker. That a lot of times it seems like the covers tend to miss, and we got the spirit of Carnus Muir behind him. Um, the only thing I dislike about the cover of Thirty One is that in having him with it on his arm, that somewhat gives away the ending. I mean, you figure that at some point the talisman's going to get on Cade or at least try to. But this is very literal to what's happening in the story. Cade, with it on his arm, with Carnus Mirror in his head, with the Sithy eyes. Um, if you really were wanting to be spoiler-free for this issue entirely, I think that gives away a little bit too much of the ending. Awesome and dramatic, but it gives away a little bit too much of the ending there. It'd be as if um, uh, you promoted the, the last issue of an adaptation of Return of the Jedi back in the day, with a shot of Luke being fried by the Emperor on the ground and Vader moving up to grab the Emperor. You know, it's just a little bit too much. Yeah, and, you know, a while back you are pointing out they had these great little Star Wars miniature uh, previews, commercials in the backs of them, and they did it in issue 29, and it goes all the way from 29 through uh, 31. 
but it's got Ahsoka, you know, she starts up there, I remember it like it was yesterday, when actually it was a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. And then it's got Dirge showing there, the Mandalorian Dirge from the first Clone Wars TV show. Now that your precious master Yoda has fallen, I will take you common troopers down with ease. Independent for the first time in battle, without Master Anakin to guide me, I stepped up to the front to lead our final furious assault. Your paltry alliance is laughable. My power is such that I'll be able to... Ah! They shoot him. Where's Ahsoka? The stormtroopers say. While I, while the troops relaxed, I planned our next moves. Over here, I'm looking for my lightsaber. And then you see Grievous's foot smash down. I was going to go easy on you, but now prepare for a merciless onslaught. Get him, boys! Ha! Is that your best? You see him spinning his lightsabers and blasting the uh, bolts. A scratch! Don't make me angry! The battle won. My troops reflected upon their achievements. And he's down there with his arms all broken but one, and he's holding it up. Come back, cowards! Come back here so I can finish you off! Well, that was fun. Wonder what our next order is going to be. What are we up to now? 64? 65? Who knows? What'll happen next? Yeah, this actually, of all of them, this is my least favorite. I mean, it is kind of cool that they're throwing Dirge in here because, of course, um, in this era, we, I mean, this, given that these are all being published back in 2008, in this era, this is where things are starting to get kind of screwy, right? Because we had the version of Clone Wars from Dark Horse and from Del Rey and with the original Gindy Tartakovsky series where we had Dirge as a big part of the Clone Wars. Only now we're moving into seeing Rex and Ahsoka. And this is 2008 as we are getting the Clone Wars uh, film release and the premiere of the Clone Wars on television, which is going to be a completely contradictory version of the Clone Wars out there. Um, but it doesn't do that whole mix and mesh of different eras like the other ones did, uh, of these weird disjointed bits and pieces being thrown together in this chaotic story. Instead, we get kind of a, uh, a joke from the Clone Wars and looking back on it, a little bit of a mix and mash because you've got dirge in there, sort of the old Clone Wars versus new Clone Wars, but nothing nearly as creative and, and goofy as the previous ones. So yeah, this one's all right, um, but it's certainly the low point of that advertising campaign. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on, sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. It's all under the Second Airborne Division tab. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Or you can just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. And, of course, keep an eye out. We have new episodes of Republic Forces Radio Network coming out right around this time, uh, talking about Season 6 of The Clone Wars, and they are meant to bridge us into Rebels Roundtable to talk about Rebels in the near future. You can find episodes of that 
through the Republic Forces Radio Network podcast feed, but also through StarWarsReport.com uh, through the Rebels Roundtable section. Um, the Rebels Roundtable feed is going to have not just those, but also some short little interviews with the individual members of the team who are going to be showing up again for Rebels Roundtable once RFRN is fully shut down uh, after the Season 6 episode. So if you're going to be following that, you can follow it either way, but the best way is through Rebels Roundtable. You can also find Rebels Roundtable on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Roundtable, or on Twitter at RebelsRound. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. In this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that Marvel will try their own Star Wars crossover. Ooh, that could get ugly. Yeah, beware the Avengers or something. (laughs) 501st, assemble!